Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. In late October 1962, we were on the brink of nuclear war. I can remember having air raid drills in grade school and an incredible presence of fear. It was the Cuban Missile Crisis. President John F. Kennedy was angry at both Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev and his own advisors. Khrushchev had sent him a private letter with terms of a deal that could end the standoff. The United States would pledge not to invade Cuba and the Soviets would pledge to remove the missiles from Cuba. But before Kennedy could respond, Khrushchev sent a second letter, a public announcement, adding a contingency that the United States also pledged to remove NATO missiles from Turkey. Kennedy's advisors had told him that the Turks would be furious if the removal of NATO missiles in Turkey were part of the deal. Kennedy believed that the attacks on both Soviet missiles in Cuba and NATO missiles in Turkey were likely if the crisis was not resolved quickly and that these attacks would escalate into nuclear war. Llewellyn Thompson, the lowest ranking advisor at the table and who had intimate knowledge of all things Russian, including Khrushchev, recommended Kennedy accept the terms of the first letter and act more or less as if the second letter didn't exist. That was what happened, and it worked. The reason that it worked was that underneath all the bluster and positioning and political chest beating, Khrushchev was basically afraid of an imminent US invasion of Cuba, the overthrow of the new and popular Cuban leader and Soviet ally, Fidel Castro, and the replacement of Castro by a hand-picked group of Cuban exiles sponsored by the CIA. In truth, none of what Khrushchev feared was intended by US leadership, although years later in retrospect, they admitted they could see how Khrushchev could easily have arrived at that fear. This history is the basis for writing lesson number one, Empathize with Your Enemy, a study by James Blight and Janet Lang at Brown University. In many forums here at Arlington Street Church and other spiritual and secular communities, we are called to practice empathy and we struggle with it. Like Fyodor Dostoevsky said, while nothing is easier than to denounce the evildoer, nothing is more difficult than to understand him. I set out to explore empathy to see what I could find that might help me and others. There's a massive amount of research and opinion on empathy. That includes definitions. So here's a small sample. Barack Obama is famously described empathy when he said it is the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through the eyes of those who are different from us, the child who's hungry, the steel worker who's been laid off, the family who lost their entire life they built together when the storm came to town. Jamil Zaki, professor of psychology at Stanford University, 
defines empathy as understanding what someone else is thinking and feeling as when we relate to a character in a novel or take someone's perspective in a business negotiation. It can be putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and feeling their emotion, but only with some risk of our experiencing what is called caretaker burnout. It can also be feeling concern about another's suffering, but, but from more of a distance and with a desire to help the person in need. Empathy means gaining an understanding of a person's politics, religion, moral code, beliefs, or principles, but we don't have to agree with them. And empathy is not the same as sympathy. According to Merriam-Webster, sympathy is when we share the feelings of another. Empathy is when we understand the feelings of another, but do not necessarily share them. I like the definition offered by Brene Brown, who says, empathy is simply listening, holding space, withholding judgment, emotionally connecting, and communicating that incredibly healing message of, you're not alone. So let's look at some of the challenges that get in, get in our way of having or finding empathy. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. pointed out in one of, the, uh, one of the challenges in his sermon, loving your enemies. He said, in order to love your enemies, you must begin by looking at and analyzing self. This is what Jesus meant when he said, how is it that you can see the mote in your brother's eye and not see the beam in your own eye? In his book, Positive Intelligence, Shirzad Shamin notes that having deeper empathy for yourself makes it possible to have deeper empathy for others. It may be the hardest thing to do because we are the hardest in judging and being critical of ourselves. So the challenge is to look at and hold space for and seek to find understanding for our own fears, our survival instincts and behaviors, our suffering, our stresses, our flaws, our limitations, our biases and prejudices, especially the ones that may be hidden. Now this negative self-inventory is not likely to be pretty or easy or pleasant, so let's not forget to also look at what brings us joy and what are our gifts, our aspirations, and our values. The point of this challenge is to look in the mirror and see and understand our own humanity in all its beauty and unbeauty, because that helps make us less judgmental and more open to having empathy for someone else. To help with this challenge, Shamin offers the empathy practice of visualizing yourself as a child. He says, if you go to a playground and watch five-year-olds play, you will probably feel instant empathy in caring for these total strangers. This is in part due to the fact that, that, at, that at this age, a child still mainly radiates with his or her positive or love essence. The off-putting negative energy that makes us less likable as adults are not yet visible. You can use this fact to shift your brain to feel empathy and caring for yourself or others. Visualize yourself as a child in a setting where your essence is shining through. Perhaps you are holding a puppy or building a sandcastle, chasing a bunny or snuggling with a loved one. Pick a vivid and detailed image that instantly triggers feelings of caring and empathy. 
You might even want an actual picture of yourself as a child in which your original personality is shining through. Put that picture on your desk or on your phone or computer so that you can see it frequently. This image will be a reminder that your true essence is worthy of unconditional caring and empathy when you are feeling beaten down by your own self-judgment or others' judgment or the troubles of life. Sometimes it's challenging to have empathy because we treat those who are in our group differently from those who are in some other group other than ours. In her article, The Psychology of Othering, Dr. Glenn Geher writes that this stems from a long history of between group pressures across human evolution. People divide themselves into social groups and we separate ourselves from others along very basic lines like ethnicity, religion, country or state of origin, sports team preference, profession, gender identity, and even some grossly arbitrary criteria. Then we see members of our own group as varying wildly from one another in all kinds of ways. Yet we see members of other groups as showing less within group var variability. We're all unique, they're all the same. We're full of exceptions and variations, and for them, you've seen one, you've seen them all. The second Unitarian Universalist principle is helpful to this challenge because it reminds us to practice equity in how we treat and understand everyone. Sometimes our mindset gets in the way of having empathy. In his sermon, Dr. King reminds us to clear out our own hate. We usually think about what hate does for the individuals or groups hated, but we also need to realize how tragic, ruinous, and injurious hating is to the individual who hates. The hater does irrational things. They can't see straight. Their vision is distorted. The beautiful becomes ugly and the ugly beautiful. The good becomes bad and the bad good. Objectivity is lost. King says it's why Jesus said to be sure that you meet every situation of life with an abounding love. In his book, Shamin notes that our mindset is contagious so that if we're hating or negative, people around us are likely to pick it up and hate or otherwise be negative right back at us. The good news is that it also goes the other way. If we're loving or otherwise positive, the people around us are likely to respond to that too. To meet this challenge, remember to have a positive, connecting, open, and loving mindset. Sometimes having empathy is challenging because we're, we're too quick to think we understand what's going on. Author Michael Bungay Stainer points out that as humans, we've been trained all our lives to do this. We listen for just long enough to formulate a solution or a perspective, and then we stop listening and jump to delivering it. For example, these days, we might jump to just get the vaccine. But not so fast because, first, we may have simply got it wrong or incomplete. We don't know that because we stopped listening too soon. Two, our perspective isn't as good as we think it is because of our own biases, slants, filters, prejudices, and experience. And three, we're not considering our impact to the other person. When we offer our understanding, we imply that we are better, smarter, more powerful than them, which is all about us, and not what they want to hear. 
but when we hold the space for them to figure it out for themselves, that empowers them, increases their competence and confidence, and gives them deeper insight into themselves. To stay focused on empathizing, Stainer recommends simply staying curious as long as possible, asking questions like, and what else? Or saying, tell me more, and continuing to listen. Remember, Brene Brown said, empathy is listening and holding space. Chris Foss is an FBI hostage negotiator who has written and speaks about tactical empathy and the challenges of getting to know the enemy. He tells the story. One night, he and some friends walked into a bar. He spotted an empty seat at the bar and went to sit down, and the guy sitting next to the seat said, don't even think about it. Chris asked, why is that? And the guy said, because I'll kick your ass. Chris and his friends show the guy some love and say, hey, how you doing? Let us talk to you. What's going on? And they eventually find out that the guy's a former Vietnam vet, and his life is in a shambles. It's a mess. He's got no job, no girlfriend, and he's out seeing a world of celebration and happiness, and he's miserable, and that's why the seat's empty. Everybody who tries to sit down, he offers to fight. In his book, Shamin describes empathy as the antidote to the battering of judgment. Most of us are doing our darndest to be the best human we know how to be, yet we are imperfect, all of us. We fall short of our ideals almost all the time. We are battered by judgment almost constantly. Let's cut ourselves some slack. Empathy is what to practice when emotional reserve is running low, when someone needs recharging before moving on with problem solving. So remember all those things that you're suffering and self-critical about? Everyone has their own list. Understand their fears, survival instincts and behaviors, suffering, stresses, flaws, limitations, prejudices, especially the ones that may be hidden. How are they seeing and understanding you? Who and what are their sources of information or perspective or approval or belonging? When it's challenging to witness and hold space and understand somebody who's buried in negative energy, try Shamin's practice of visualizing them as a child. Look for their essence, for their inner spirit. They are doing the best they can and struggling to survive like everyone else. They are worthy of unconditional caring and empathy. And don't forget to, bring out what brings, to find out what brings them joy. What are their gifts? their aspirations, and their values. Dr. King calls us to discover the elements of good in our adversaries, to believe that there is some good in them, and to look at those good points, which will overbalance the bad points. So here we are at another Unitarian Universalist principle, the first. To practice empathy, we are called to believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every being. Sometimes having empathy is challenging when it means uncovering and understanding broader social circumstances. Sociologist Brooke Harrington explains this in a recent article in The Atlantic. People have a very specific set of social ties that sociologists call reference groups. The neighborhoods, churches, workplaces, and friendship networks that help people obtain the income, information, companionship, mutual aid, and other resources they need to live. 
the price of access to those resources and conform is conformity to group norms. And most people primarily seek the approval of people in their own reference groups, and nobody strives for the good opinion of everyone. People in a reference group can become enmeshed in a very distinctive type of relationship called a con job. Con artists gain social or financial advantage by convincing their targets to believe highly dubious claims and to block out all information to the contrary. To outsiders, the social dynamics of the con appear peculiar and irrational. Those caught up in it can seem self-destructive and frankly clueless. But to sociologists who study fraud, such behaviors obey a predictable logic. All targets of con artists eventually come to understand that they are, have been defrauded, yet they almost never admit it or complain the report or report the crime to authorities because it's admitting that they have been conned and that is so deeply shameful that they experience it as kind of a social death. They have defined themselves as a shrewd person and must face the fact that they are only an easy mark. They have defined themselves as possessing a certain set of qualities and then proven to themselves that they are miserably lacking in them. Victims of con jobs can save their pride by denying the con as long as possible or claiming they were in on it the whole time. This saves face and cheats social death but allows the con to continue unchecked and trapping others in doing so, victims prioritize their self-image over the common good. So having empathy may include the challenge of understanding that people stubbornly holding to certain beliefs or who are afraid to go public that they no longer hold onto those beliefs are the victim of and trapped in a con. And it includes bringing the con artists into view and shifting more attention to the larger social, social situation. Harrington suggests that many of the people who are refusing to wear masks or get vac vaccinated for COVID-19 or are doing so undercover are trapped in a horrible, outrageous, and insidious con. Knowing that, does it help us shift, even just a little, away from judging them as stupid? And does it help us just a little, or a lot, to shift our energies instead, of, instead to the political and community, uh, community leaders who are conning them. What about when we're challenged by significant mental illness or dysfunction, like narcissism or sociopathy, as factors in someone for whom we're trying to find empathy? This is what I would call a graduate level empathy challenge. We can try to visualize the innocent, essential child without or before any disease or trauma who is deserving of unconditional affirmation and love. But it makes sense also to realize and accept that facing some challenges may require partnering with trained, experienced professionals. So we've explored what empathy is and some of the challenges of practicing it. Let's close with remembering why empathy is important. When empathy rises, we discover and better understand ourselves. We have a starting point to enable finding a resolution to differences or conflicts and for creating or healing a connection. 
we can see the size of the circle we draw to define who is us and who is other and open that circle. We can clear up ours and others' misunderstandings of each other or a social context and so better determine our strategies and direct our energies and attention. We have a start to finding acceptance, if not agreement, and even to finding forgiveness. In his sermon, Dr. King said, somebody must have the sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe, and you do that by love. When empathy rises, we are taking a step into love. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. Our benediction is from her book, Rainbow in the Cloud, The Wisdom and Spirit of Maya Angelou. Each one of us has lived through some devastation, some loneliness, some weather superstorm or spiritual superstorm. When we look at each other, we must say, I understand. I understand how you feel because I have been there myself. We must support each other and empathize with each other because each of us is more alike than we are unalike. Let us keep the faith and carry it on. The service begins when the service ends. Amen. Where you go, where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.